Wow, really good crowd for our Wednesday night. It's good to see each of you here and wonderful to have everybody joining us by Zoom as well. Um, let's go ahead and get started. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We are beginning, as promised, a new series tonight called True Discipleship. It'll probably take us two, maybe three months to work through. And then after that, we're going to be starting a series called True Worship, God willing. And uh, hope that the Lord will meet with us and encourage us and uh, give some light in these coming days. You're in Matthew chapter 7. These verses are doubtless familiar to you, verses 13 to 14. That's where we're going to begin. The Lord Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Let's ask for God's blessing upon us. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, thanking you for getting us safely to this part of our week. And we ask, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us this evening, that you would give unction and clarity, illumination, light, and application to us as we consider things from your Holy Word. Lord, we are desirous that those who do not yet know you would be translated from death to life. And Lord, those who do know you but who lack the assurance of their salvation would find encouragement and help and comfort that they might be confident that they are indeed in your kingdom by your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On any given Lord's Day, when we gather together, we have approximately 60 people coming to our church at this point. One of the things that hit me a couple of months ago is that almost fully half of those are children, are young people. And the vast majority of those children and young people have not yet closed with Christ, though some have. And as Pastor Matt and I pray in our own prayer closets, and then as we pray together as elders, I don't think we ever pray as elders without praying for the children of our church. We're deeply burdened that you would find Christ, that you would close with Christ. And we're also encouraged that by what we see, could be a stirring among our children and young people, a desire to enter in by the narrow gate and find the Lord. And on top of that, there are always those people who are wrestling, who are truly in Christ, but who are struggling with the lack of certainty, the lack of assurance of their salvation. You'll find that we find that if we preach on the subject of assurance and put it on sermon audio, it will get downloaded very quickly because people are hungry for this kind of thing. They're struggling with this, these kinds of questions. And these are questions that are pertinent to our souls. So our endeavor, my endeavor in, in the coming weeks, is to answer basically three questions. What is true faith? That's the first question. Secondly, what is true repentance? And then the third is, what constitutes true assurance biblically? Well, with no more than that for our introduction, I want to dive right into our text, and I want to consider two things together tonight. First of all, I want us to consider two eternal destinies, and secondly, nine different kinds of people. Nine different kinds of people. So first of all, two eternal destinies. The Lord is amazing as a teacher. We can say many, many words and say nothing, 
Jesus can say a few words and just pack it full. And these two verses are an example of where Jesus just packs it to the gills. There's four items that are compared, four pairs of items that are contrasted with one another in these two verses. And I want you to consider them together. The first is there's two different kinds of travelers that Jesus talks about. He says there's the few and there's the many. Then there are two different kinds of gates. There's a narrow gate that's hard to squeeze through. And there's a broad gate. You can walk side by side with 20 people side by side and walk straight through it. It's not hard to walk through at all. Third, there's two different kinds of roads. There's a difficult road, a difficult path that's narrow and hard and treacherous. And then there's a broad path, an easy path that's very simple to walk upon. But then fourth, there's two destinies. There is life or there's destruction. So let's... There's something else we should mention before we go any further. Let's compare two of these items. If you ever thought about this, Jesus talks about gates and he talks about roads. Gates and roads aren't the same thing, are they? You pass through a gate, but do you pass through a road or do you walk on a road? You walk on a road. You don't walk on a gate. You pass through a gate. Step through a gate. One second, you're on this side. Next second, you're on the other. But when you're walking on a road, you may walk on it for many, many miles, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles, even conceivably. So you can travel for a very, very long time on a road, but you just pass through a gate in a moment of time. So let's put all this together and see what is Jesus talking about. Of the 8 billion people who are now living in the world, and you realize there are more people living right now than all the other centuries combined. So there are more people living in the world right now than ever. But of all the 8 billion people who are presently living in the world, very few are going to go to heaven when they die. The majority will die and go to hell. But there are a few who will pass through the narrow gate. They will begin to walk upon the difficult path. And what is their end? What's the end of their journey? It's eternal life. But then there's another group of people, the majority of people in the world, the many, who pass through the wide gate. They walk on the broad path. And what is their end? Their end is eternal destruction in hell. So the question that I want to set before you, and I'm going to ask you lots of questions. My first question is this. Which one are you? Do you belong to the few? Or do you belong to the many? Have you entered by the narrow gate? Are you walking on the difficult path? Because if that is you, then your end is eternal life. But if you're on the broad, if you've gone through the broad gate and are walking on the broad path, your end is eternal damnation in hell. And every one of you in this room, every one of you listening on Zoom, people listening on Sermon Audio, whatever, you belong to one of those two groups. There is no third group, there's no fourth group. It's one of those two places. There's only two eternal destinies, only two uh, different kinds of travelers. So if we're thinking about the analogy then that Jesus is giving of a gate that you pass through, a gate belongs to a fence, doesn't it? <clears throat> you have to have a fence around it. So let's imagine that there's this fence that goes on for thousands and thousands of miles. But there's only one way to enter into it, and everything on the inside of it is the kingdom of God. Everything outside of it 
is the world. Okay, So you enter into the kingdom of God by passing through that narrow gate. Now, this gate is so big, so vast, but you can't, it's so high that you can't climb over it. It's so strong, you can't crash through it or break in. There's only, and furthermore, no matter how many miles you walk around it, no matter how many thousands of miles, there's not a hundred different gates to enter in by. There's not even 20 gates. There's just one gate. And that gate is extremely small. It's extremely narrow so that you could walk right by it and miss it really easy. And even if you find it, it's not necessarily easy to pass through because it's a narrow gate. So it's not like you can just walk through it. So you got to turn by it and squeeze and pull yourself in and you go in. And as soon as you go through that narrow gate, your foot starts walking upon the difficult path. So I take what Jesus is saying to mean this. The narrow gate is conversion. It's when someone is converted and translated from death to life. And conversion is an instantaneous act. One moment you don't know the Lord, the next moment you do. One moment you're outside the kingdom, the next moment you're inside the kingdom. Now, does anyone know what the word conversion means? Does anybody know? Let her fly. To be changed, yes. To turn, literally. To turn. So if I'm walking this way, I'm walking in the wrong direction, and I'm walking completely in, the, in, the, in this broad path to destruction, and God gets a hold of my heart, He turns me, and now I'm walking towards Him. Before I was walking away from Him. That's what conversion means. That means to turn. So you do two things to be saved. Let me ask you children, young people, tell me, or anyone. What two things do you have to do to be saved? Believe and repent. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus said. The very first words out of his mouth, the very first sermon he ever preached. He said, repent and believe the gospel. So I'm heading towards sin. I'm rebelling against God. He's behind me and I'm trying to run away from him. And the Lord gets a hold of my heart. And I want to turn. I want to repent and turn away from my sin. And I want to turn towards God. But then how can I be justified? How can it be made right? When I turn, I have to put my faith in Jesus Christ. I have to trust in Him alone to save me, for Him to do for me what I can't do for myself. And that is how you enter in by the narrow gate. So the way you enter in by the narrow gate is repenting of your sin and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you have done so, your feet immediately begin walking upon the difficult path of discipleship. Now, what's a disciple? Someone tell me what a disciple is. Follower. What's another word? Learner. Learner. Student. Right? I have a master, and I'm going to follow that master. Now, Jesus isn't physically here present with us, so we can't literally follow him the way his apostles did, right? They could literally follow him from city to city on the road and that kind of thing. So we don't have Jesus here present with us physically. So when we say follow Jesus, what do we mean? How do you follow Jesus? Follow his teaching, follow the scriptures. Listening to God's word. Listening to God's word, that's right. Anything else? I would suggest there's two words that you need to keep in mind. Trust. What do you think the other one's going to be? Obey. Obey. You trust his promises. You trust that everything he says in his word is true. 
And then you obey everything he's commanded you to do. Now, if you're truly converted, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ walking upon the difficult path, do you walk on that path perfectly? No. Do you fail? Do you ever disobey? Do you ever sin against the Lord when you become a Christian? Matter of fact, I want you to understand something, children and young people. When you come to know the Lord, you don't stop struggling with sin. You know what? That's when you start struggling with sin for the first time in a way you never have before. In fact, before you know that Jesus, sin doesn't really bother you that much. All you're worried about when you sin is if you get caught, right? But once you come to know Jesus, you can't live with sin anymore. You can't be comfortable with it because He won't let you be because He loves you too much to let you be comfortable with it. So He disciplines you by convicting your conscience and makes it, I'm going to convict you until you confess your sin and deal with it. And aren't you glad, Christians, that that's what He does for us? But let me ask you this. What if somebody says they've passed through the narrow gate of conversion, but if you watch their lifestyle, they're walking on the broad path to destruction. They live in lawlessness. They disregard what God has to say in His Word, and they live just like the world does. Has that person truly been converted? No. They're walking on the broad path. And the sad thing for all of us is, Children, young people, do you know what you have to do to walk through the wide gate? How do you enter in by the wide gate? Does anyone know? You ever thought about it? You know what you have to do? Nothing. Nothing. You know what you have to do? You have to be born. That's all. Because Adam already blew it for us. Adam always sinned, and we inherited his sin. That's why David says in Psalm 51, In sin did my mother conceive me. And we are, by nature, children of children of wrath. That's from Ephesians, isn't it? We, by nature, do the things that are contrary to God's law. So tell me, so when we disobey God's law, what does the Bible call that? It's called sin, right? So sin, John says, sin is lawlessness. God is put us under His authority. And we are expected to obey what He's told us to do. And where is what He's told us to do summarized in Scripture? Can someone tell me? The Ten Commandments. Thank you. So sin is lawlessness. Sin is disobeying the Ten Commandments. So let's put it this way. The broad path is walking in disobedience to God by worshiping other gods... And perhaps you'd say to yourself, well, I've never worshipped another god. I never bowed down in front of a statue of Buddha or anything like that. But if you've loved anything more than you love Jesus, if you've ever served or loved anything more than you love God, then you know what you are? You're a worshiper of another god. You're an idolater. And is there any of us in this room who has not loved other things more than we've loved God? That's living in sin. What about taking God's name in vain? That when you're startled or surprised and you hear someone say, Oh my God, or OMG, they're taking God's name in vain. Or what about this? We don't think about this much today, but what about when you profane God's Sabbath day? Do you know what you're saying? You're saying, God, I don't want you to tell me how I use my time. I want to use my time the way I want to use my time, and I don't care what you think about it. But does God have the right to tell you how to use your time? And what is the Lord's Day supposed to be? It's supposed to be a day of worship and of rest. 
you know, serving one another and doing works of necessity and mercy, but also works of worship, works of piety. So it's not a small sin, it's a profaning of, of God's day. Or how about this? Disrespecting and disobeying your parents. Children, is that a sin? Because the Bible tells you to honor your father and your mother. And when you speak disrespectfully to them, or you disobey what they said, or you lie to them and deceive them, you've dishonored God and what He tells you to do. Or what about murder? You shall not murder. Anybody in here murdered anybody before? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> None of us have actually killed anybody, right? At least not in murder. I don't think we have. But if you hate someone in your heart, Jesus says you're a murderer. You have a murderer's heart. Or what about this? You shall not commit adultery. Which means not only that you shouldn't live in sexual immorality, it also means you can't look after someone and lust after them in your heart, which means if you've ever looked at pornography, then you have broken that commandment. Uh, what about stealing? Or lying? Or cheating? Or coveting? Anyone ever been jealous of someone else? Ever been envious that someone else had something you didn't have and you wish you had it? Or maybe they're popular and you wish you were popular as they were or people were friends with you, but that they're not friends with you, they're friends with them. All of us are that. Well, the Bible calls that coveting. And to live habitually in all those sins is to live in lawlessness, is to walk upon the broad path to destruction. So that's what sin is, and that's our great problem. We're going to talk about that, God willing, more next week. And talk more about sin and what it is. But nonetheless, according to Jesus, the way that leads to destruction, there are many who go in by it. So your only hope is if you find this narrow gate called conversion. And you are able to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. And you pass through the narrow gate and you begin to walk upon the difficult path of discipleship. So is it clear that there are two different eternal destinies? Okay. Let's move on to the next thing then, which is nine different kinds of people. Nine different kinds of people. In Mark chapter 12, one of the scribes, and the scribes were experts in the law, right? They literally copied the Bible by hand and made copies of the Bible. He asked Jesus an important question. He said, which is the greatest commandment in the law of Moses? In other words, there are 613 commandments in the law of Moses, right? And the question was, which of them is the weightiest? Which, which one is the most important? Do you remember what Jesus' answer was? What did Jesus say was the most important commandments? Does anyone know? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, which is? Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That, is, that summarizes the entire Old Testament, Jesus said. Okay, so then, do you remember what the scribe said? The scribe responded very enthusiastically to Jesus giving that answer. Remember what he said? He said, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there's no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart... With all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Does anyone remember what Jesus said in response to that man when he said that? Does anyone remember? You're close to the kingdom. You're close to the kingdom. He said, here is the direct quote, it's Mark 12, 34. 
When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say you're inside the kingdom of God, but he said you're very close to it. So if we're thinking of the kingdom of God as enclosed by this great fence that nobody can scale or break through, but there is a narrow gate by which you can enter into it, then there are people who are very, very far away from that gate. They're nowhere near it. But Jesus' words tell us that there are some people who are very close to that gate. They're right outside of it. They're ready to go into it, but they haven't entered in yet. And I think some of you are there. I think some of you may be standing right there and you're searching for where's this gate and how do I enter in? And you're just a few steps away because God has drawn you near. But then there's other people. Some people are far away. Some people are close. There's other people. They've passed through that gate and they're inside. And so our nine different kinds of people are people in their relationship to the kingdom of God. Okay, And I hope you're going to find this encouraging because I believe every one of you in this room is part of one of these nine groups. And our goal, our desire is that ultimately God would make all of us to be the ninth kind of person I'm going to describe tonight, okay? So let's, let's go through them. I want you to ask you the question, you'd be thinking about this, which group are you in? Because when you know which group you're in, hopefully then God can give you wisdom to know how do I move from where I am, okay? So, here we go. You ready? I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, but I want you to understand them. First one is this. There are people who have never heard the gospel. They've never had Jesus preach to them. Do you know, children, there are millions of people living in the world right now who don't even know that God has a son named Jesus because they don't have a Bible. No one has ever gone and translated, learned their language and translated the Bible into their language and preached the gospel to them. And so they don't even know that Jesus exists. They do know that God exists. How do they know God exists? Anyone know? Creation. creation. Exactly. Because the creation says there's a creator. Uh, some of you are talking about going to the beach uh, pretty soon. If, say you're walking on the beach and you're walking on the shore and there's, you're on the sand right by the seashore and all of a sudden there's a stopwatch. You're like, where in the world did that come from? And you pick it up and you dust off the sand. Tell me, children, is there something you can say about that stopwatch? You don't know where it came from, but there's something you can say for certain. It's someone else's. It's someone else's. Well, that, that's good. That's another thing you can say for certain. That's not what I was looking for, but that's good. You're right. You're right. It does belong to somebody else. But did it make itself? No. Can a watch make itself? So the existence of a stopwatch implies the existence of a watchmaker, right? Someone intelligent, someone who could design something like that, this instrument of precision. Can a stopwatch just exist without a creator? Of course not. There has to be a watchmaker. Do you realize this creation is more complex than a watch? Creation doesn't create itself. It doesn't just come out of nothing. Everything that exists was created by someone of infinite intelligence and great power, limitless power. And the world can look at the creation and they can know that. They can also know that there's absolute right and wrong because they have a conscience. 
And men are created in the image of God. Even if they never read the Bible, they know there's such a thing as right and wrong. They know that it's wrong to take another man's wife. They know it's wrong to murder someone in cold blood. They know it's wrong to steal someone's things that don't belong to you. That's by nature imprinted into their hearts because they're made in God's image. But here's the thing. If you find a stopwatch, can you know that the maker of the stopwatch has a son? No. No. There's no way to know unless somebody comes and tells you that he has a son, right? And the same thing's true for the world. Unless somebody comes and tells them that God has an only begotten son named Jesus, they will never know that there's a Jesus who came to die for sinners. That's why we pray for missionaries to be sent out into the world. Because without missionaries telling them about Jesus, they cannot be saved. So here's the question, children. Are people who've never heard the gospel, are they near to the kingdom or are they far away from the kingdom? They're far away. So let's move on to our second person. But before we do, I want to say something. Do you realize something? None of you in this room belong to that first group. Because every one of you has had Jesus preached to you from the time you were little. As a matter of fact, you've had Jesus preached to you so often I bet you, if you tried to count the number of times you've heard a sermon in which Jesus and his gospel has been proclaimed, you couldn't do it. Bet you couldn't count. Because you have heard it so many times. Children, don't take it for granted. Because there's millions of people who've never heard. But you don't belong to that first group. You belong to one of these other eight groups. Okay. So we've already, by process of elimination, we know you're not part of one group. Let's move on to the second group. Second, there are people who've heard the gospel, but they do not understand it. They do not understand it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They can't make sense of it. They don't understand it. But to, those, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there are people who have the gospel explained to them, but they don't understand it. You remember Jesus giving the parable of the four soils? And he talks about the seed of the gospel being poured out upon those, planted upon those various soils. And the first soil was the hardened soil. It's tramped down so that the, the seed can't penetrate it with its roots. And you remember what happens to it? Somebody remember what, what happens to the, that seed? The birds come and they eat it, right? It turns into bird seed. And they eat it and they snatch it away so it never penetrates their heart. And Jesus says that's people who hear the gospel, but they don't understand it. And the devil comes and snatches it away from their hearts. So people who don't understand the gospel can't put their faith in the gospel. They can't believe the gospel because they don't understand it. They don't comprehend it. You know something? I think for most of you, that's probably not you either. I think most of you have probably understood something about what the gospel means. So let's move on to the third kind of person. Third, there are people who understand the gospel, but they do not believe it. They've heard it. Maybe they grew up in church or raised in a Christian home. All their life, they had the Bible taught to them. They've heard about God, they believe, or, or they don't believe, but they've heard that, G, that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They've heard the story about how God sent His Son Jesus to die for sinners like us, how He died on the cross, was buried. Three days later, what happened? 
He rose again from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And they've even heard they're supposed to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus to be saved, but they don't believe it. They understand it. Some of them are atheists. They understand what the Bible says, but they don't believe there's a God. Or maybe they're agnostics. They believe there's some kind of higher power, some sort of great being, but not really sure that it's the God of the Bible. So they don't believe. Or maybe they even believe, yeah, maybe there was a man named Jesus who lived, and he was a nice man and a good moral teacher. And he died because he was misunderstood by people. And so they crucified him on a cross, and he was buried, and it's very sad. But of course, they wouldn't believe that he's raised from the dead. So in other words, they understand the gospel. They've heard the gospel. They just don't believe it. Now, are they close to the kingdom or are they far from the kingdom? Far from the kingdom. So our first three kinds of people that we've talked about, are they near to the kingdom or are they far away? They're all far away, aren't they? Fourth then, there are people who believe the gospel, but they refuse to obey it. That is, they've heard the gospel. They know it's true. They understand it. They believe God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe that Jesus came and died for sinners. They believe He's risen. They know it's true. They believe it, but they refuse to obey the gospel. Now, do you hear that language, obey the gospel? The gospel commands us to do things. We are commanded. God commands all men everywhere to repent. God commands you to believe on Jesus Christ. It's not a request. It's an invitation, but it's also a commandment that you would believe on Jesus Christ. But there are people who, for whatever reason, though they know it's all true, they don't want to obey the gospel by repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus. Let me, maybe there's just, in, in some of them, maybe it's just that there's some sin they love so much that they don't want to get rid of it. They don't want to part from their sin, and they love their sin so much that they would rather hold on to their sin than repent of it and come and put, bow the knee to Jesus Christ and become a slave of righteousness because they love being slaves of sin. And so even though they know it's true, they would rather lose their own soul in hell than that they should give up their sins because they love sin so much. How many of you have heard of a man named Augustine, Augustine of Hippo? He was a man from North Africa. And he, at first, was very skeptical when he started hearing the gospel. But over time, he kept hearing it being preached. And he came to believe it was true. But do you know that he wrestled for like 10 years from the time that he knew it was true to the time that he repented and put his faith in Jesus? Do you know why? Because he was sexually immoral. He had a lot of mistresses. And he wanted to be saved, but he didn't want to give up his sin. So he would literally pray, Lord, make me chaste. That is, Lord, make me morally pure, but not yet. Because he didn't want to give up his sin. The rich young ruler is another example of such a person. You ever thought about the rich young ruler? Here's a man who said he wanted eternal life. The Bible says he ran to Jesus. He fell on his knees. He said, Lord, what good thing must I do that I might have eternal life? And Jesus told him the law. He went over the law and says, do all these things and you'll live. Jesus wasn't saying to him, you can be saved by your works. What he was showing him was, you're a sinner. And you need to recognize your sin. And let me show you the law because the law shows you your sin. But this young man was very naive. He said, Lord, I've kept all these things from my youth. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he says, one thing you lack. 
Go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me, and you will have riches in heaven. What was the man's response? Someone tell me. You remember? He was sad. Why was he sad? That's right. What was Jesus pointing out to him? Anybody ever thought about that? What was he showing him? He's not perfect. The what? You love money more than me. That's right. You love money more than me. As a matter of fact, there's one specific commandment of the Ten Commandments Jesus doesn't mention until then. What what commandment was he guilty of breaking? Idolatry is, yes. But specifically in the Ten Commandments, it would be, well, it would be the first one, but the tenth, right? He coveted. He loved money, which is idolatry. And because he had that idol, he didn't want to give up his idol. He didn't want to give up his riches. Jesus knew and he pointed out to him, destroy your idol. Destroy the thing that you love more than you love me and come follow me. And this man said, that's too much. That's too, too costly. I'd rather die in my sins. Was that smart? When he died, do you think he got to take his money with him? No. Where is he now? Hell. It's in hell. In other words, what did he say? He said, the narrow gate's too narrow. He came close to the kingdom, but he walked away because he didn't want to obey the gospel. There's another case that may keep people from going in. Can your own work save you? Can you be obedient enough to earn a way into heaven? Absolutely not. I'm so glad that you all know this because so many people don't. But here's the thing. There's some people who even though they know that and they've heard that taught, they're so proud that they say, I can make it. I can be good enough. My works can get me into heaven. And they're so proud they don't want to give up their own self-righteousness. And so it's not so much an issue of their sins, like gross things that they do that they're not willing to give up. It's their pride. They, have to, they don't want to have to humble themselves and acknowledge my, my righteousness isn't good enough. And so they refuse to enter in because for them the narrow gate's too narrow because Jesus says, your righteousness doesn't fit here through this narrow gate. You have to be saved by my righteousness and not by your own. And they don't want to hear that. So they know the gospel, but they refuse to obey it. So these people, there's a sense in which they're kind of close to the kingdom in the sense that they understand the gospel. And yet in another way, they're kind of far from it, aren't they? They refuse to go in. There's a fifth group. And this fifth group is perhaps the scariest of all. There are people who believe the gospel, have not obeyed it, but think that they have. People who think they know Jesus, but they don't. They think they've repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, but they haven't. They think they've passed through the narrow gate, but they're still on the outside not on the inside. Paul warns about those who have, quote, believed in vain. And Jesus warns about temporary believers, people who believe for a while and then fall away. People who never bear fruit. James writes about people who say they have faith, but they have no works that prove that their faith is real. And so these are people who, though they say they know Jesus, 
they're walking on the broad path to destruction. Do they really know Jesus? No. No, they're deceived. They're self-deceived. They don't even know what their own condition is. John describes it this way in 1 John. He says, they are in darkness and they walk in darkness and they do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. They can't even discern their own condition. And you realize that in the southeast where we live, in most churches, this is how things are. People have not repented. They've not believed in Jesus, but they prayed a prayer they walked down an aisle, they said they knew Jesus, they were baptized, and they think they're okay with the Lord. And yet, on the day of judgment, Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty three, He's going to look at them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, they practice lawlessness. What does that mean? That means they're not walking on the difficult path. They're walking on the broad path to destruction. You know something, and you, and, and you parents and you adults who are in Christ, you know this. Who is the hardest person to share the gospel with? This kind of person. And I'm afraid our churches are filled with these kind of people. And so that's the scariest place. In one sense, they're so close to the kingdom, aren't they? They know the scriptures. They know the word of God. They know the gospel. They're surrounded by God's people. They've been in the midst of the worship services when the Holy Spirit's moving, and yet they don't know the Lord. And they don't even know that they don't know the Lord. And so on the day of judgment, they're going to be shocked when they say, Lord, Lord, it's me. And he says, I never knew you. I pray that none of you have to ever hear him say those words to you. But let's move on to the sixth. And here it gets more encouraging. Okay? Here's the part I've been waiting for. Here's the part I've been looking forward to all night. And I'm not kidding. Because okay? I think that the sixth and seventh is some of you in here. The sixth are people who believe the gospel and they're striving to enter into the kingdom by the narrow gate. They know that their soul is in danger, they're terrified of going to hell. And they're seeking God. They know they're not in Christ, but they're seeking the Lord because they want to know, how do I find the narrow gate? How do I enter in by it? They want it so badly they can taste it. They hunger and they thirst for righteousness because God Himself has put the hunger inside of their hearts. They long to be set free from their sins. They long to know what it is to serve Jesus as Lord. They want to have their sins forgiven. They want to be dressed in His righteousness. But they're groping. They're struggling. They're wondering, do I really understand? Is there something I'm lacking? Like the rich young ruler, one thing you lack, what is it that I'm lacking? Maybe they're wrestling with those hard questions of, have I repented enough? Have you ever struggled with that? Have I believed enough? Do I really have saving faith? Well, I want to encourage you, if that's you, because I think some of you here are like that. You are very, very close to the kingdom of God. You're just a few steps away. You're right there. And pray God, I pray God will open your eyes to see what is it I'm lacking? What is it I'm missing? What is it I need to know? in order to pass through that narrow gate. 
But let me tell you something else, and I hope this is encouraging to you. It's entirely possible that if I've just described you, it's possible you're not the sixth kind of person. Maybe you're the seventh kind of person. You know who the seventh person is? Seventh person are people who have recently passed through the narrow gate, but they lack the assurance that they have. In other words, they're struggling and striving outside the narrow gate. And by God's mercies, they've repented and they've believed and they have just stepped inside of it. But just barely. There's only a few feet separating them from the people outside the kingdom. But what they lack is the assurance that they've repented and believed. They're still struggling with that certainty, but guess what? They're already inside the kingdom. They just don't know it yet. You see, God, when He saves us, does, does you think He usually just, the first time somebody ever hears about Jesus, they immediately say, okay, yeah, I'm going to repent and believe in Jesus. You think that's what happens? No. They usually hear about Him for a long time, sometimes for years. Now, sometimes the Lord does extraordinary things and somebody hears the gospel the first time and instantly believes it, but that's the exception. Usually, we hear it for a long time. So we were once far from the kingdom of God and God begins to draw us near to the kingdom. Okay, And then when you pass through that narrow gate, immediately you're walking on the difficult path. So there's a process that leads away from your conversion. And sometimes it's not easy to look back and realize, at what point did I pass from death to life? And you know something? You don't have to know exactly when you pass from death to life. That's really not that important. You ever heard somebody say, you need to know the day and the hour that you came to know Jesus. And if you don't, then you need to get saved. You ever heard anybody say that? That's garbage. That's garbage. The Bible never says that you have to know the day or the hour. You need to know that you passed from death to life. You need to know, I was once blind and now I see. But you don't have to know the exact moment. You just have to know that there was a time that you passed from death to life. That God changed your heart. That He gave you repentance and faith. And at which point that happened, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're in the kingdom. Right? Whatever time that happened. But you know, the reality is that if you're the sixth kind of person, <clears throat> there's really not that much separating you from the other kind of person, the, the sixth kind. Just outside the kingdom or just inside of it? The, only, the difference is one is converted, one's not. But the other difference is you're struggling with assurance. Do I know? How do I know that I've found Christ? I recently read a book, a really edifying book, by a man named Ebenezer Porter. Lived in the early part of the 19th century. He wrote a book called Letters on Revival. He had seen God bring revival during the Second Great Awakening. And about 20 years later, a group of pastors asked him, he said, we want you to write down what you saw and your observations because this is, would be helpful to us. So he did. And one of the things he pointed out was that most of the people who were converted to Christ during the revival, the Second Great Awakening, it took them many months before they gained the assurance of their conversion. That was normal. And he said, in fact, usually the people who struggled with their assurance for the longest were the ones who endured in the faith for the longest afterwards. Listen to what J.C. Rowell says, quote, Saving faith is often so weak and feeble at first that he who has it cannot be persuaded that he has it. Let me read that again. Saving faith is often so weak and feeble at first that he who has it cannot be persuaded that he has it. Because he's wrestling with a lack of certainty. But let me ask you something. If somebody's repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus and they've been converted, but they lack the assurance of their salvation, 
Are they any less saved than other people who have the assurance of their salvation? They're just as saved. Because Jesus promises, if you come to me, I will in no wise cast you out. And that leads me then to the eighth group. And maybe we're moving away from the children now to the adults, okay? (laughs) So I hope this is going to encourage you. Eighth, there are people who have walked upon the difficult path of discipleship for many, many years, but who still lack assurance. In other words, there are men and women who came to faith in Christ many years ago, passed through the narrow gate of conversion. They've been walking upon the difficult path of discipleship for a long time. They know the scriptures. They've been baptized, added to the church, serve in the church. And every brother and sister in Christ around them recognizes that they're walking upon the difficult path. They recognize them. They see them. And they know it. And they see the fruit that comes out of their life. Works don't save us, right? But do works have a role to play in the Christian life? They do. We're saved unto works. And works are the proof that we really are saved. Let me put it to you this way. My wife has an engagement ring that I gave her uh, over 21 years ago, uh, over 31 years ago, (laughs) sorry, um, when I first got engaged to her. And there's a big diamond on it. Now, children, suppose you looked at me and said, Pastor Jerry, I think you're a cheapskate. I don't think you bought it, paid real money for a real diamond. I think you bought your wife's engagement ring in a bubblegum machine for 25 cents. I don't think she has a real diamond. Okay? No, I know none of you would say that. But let's suppose you did. And let's say I wanted to prove to you that the diamond on her ring really is a diamond. Is there anything I could do to prove that to you? What could I do? What's that? I could show you, yes. But how do you know it's not glass? How do you know it's diamond? You hit it with a hammer because it's a very hard substance. What if I had a small pane of glass? Is there anything I could do to prove that it was a diamond? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can magnify it. That's not, a, that's not wrong. <laughs> Hit them against each other. These are not wrong. But here's here's the thing. Diamonds can cut glass. So if I take my wife's ring and take that diamond and I run it across a pane and it cuts the the glass, what's that prove to you? It's It's real. It's a diamond, right? Here's a question. Does it make it a diamond? No. It was a diamond before I cut the glass, wasn't it? But it proves it's a diamond. That's how works are in the Christian life. Works don't make you a Christian, but they're the proof that you really are a Christian. The evidence. If a man says he has faith but doesn't have works, can his faith save him? Faith produces works. Okay? So let's, here's this person, this eighth kind of person, who's been walking with Jesus for a very long time, and they're bearing spiritual fruit. And everybody around them, all their brothers and sisters in Christ, they see it. They can smell it. They take the bowl of fruit and they're like, this smells good. This looks good. Tastes good. Yeah. But for the person who struggles with their assurance, they look at the fruit and they say, what you don't see is there's a bruise on the side of that grape. And there's some rot on the side of that grape. And there's worms on the inside of it that you can't see. Because as much as you think I have good spiritual fruit, you can't see inside my heart. 
And you don't know the horrible things that I think about. And you don't know the hateful, bitter attitudes that I have towards other people sometimes. And you don't see the pride that's lurking in my heart behind every good thing that I do. And so no matter how much you tell them, they cannot be convinced that they really know the Lord, even though it's evident to everyone around them. And so they live in a constant fear that they're the fifth kind of person. The person who knows the gospel, believes the gospel, but nonetheless doesn't, hasn't really obeyed the gospel. And they're terrified that when they stand before Jesus, the thing they're going to hear him say is, depart from me because I never knew you. And the thing is, they're actually going to be surprised when they get to heaven in a very different way. When Jesus looks at them and says, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Nobody is going to be more shocked than them to hear that. You mean I really am in the kingdom? But they struggle. They struggle because they say other Christians who try to comfort me, they don't know my heart. Well, let me encourage you. If you're like that, then I know that when you hear the pastors preach and say, examine yourself to see and you be in the faith, I know you're going, I know he's talking to me. But the reality is you need to take the medicine that God has for you. And the medicine you need probably is not examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. Here's, the, here's what you need. If your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart and knows all things. He adds that and knows all things. Why? He knows just how wretched your heart is. In fact, he knows it's a lot worse than you think it is. He sees all those sinful thoughts and all those bad motives. And you know what? He loves you anyway. And he accepts you because you're dressed in the righteousness of his son. And you're cleansed by his blood and you're his child. And so there is this ability to gain assurance that you don't have. And that leads me to the ninth and final kind of person. There are people who've entered the kingdom and are enjoying the full assurance of their salvation. That is, they understand the gospel, they believe the gospel, they've obeyed the gospel, they've entered into the kingdom, they've been baptized as believers, they've been added to the church, and they enjoy the assurance that they know the Lord. They're basking in that. And you know what? That means they're, joy, they're enjoying the joy of their salvation. Remember what David said? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He had lost it. But he's saying, Lord, please give it back to me. Because salvation is something meant to be enjoyed, not meant to be endured. And so they have the certainty, the joy. That doesn't mean they don't ever struggle with doubts. Let me tell you something. Every Christian struggles with doubts. If you don't struggle with doubts, I don't think you're a Christian. Okay? It's normal. And... Assurance isn't a pass-fail. It's not either I have assurance or I don't. There are degrees of assurance, and some are more assured than others. And everybody goes through times and seasons where they struggle and wrestle with, do I really know the Lord? But I'm saying these are people who, as a general rule, that's not their struggle. Generally speaking, they're confident in the Lord, and they trust and know that they really are in Christ. So let me go ahead and state the obvious. If you're part of the first eight Groups, where do you think the Lord would have you to be ultimately? To be in the ninth group, to be truly converted, and to be enjoying the joy and the assurance of your salvation. Well, 
Let me make three applications for tonight. First, which of the nine kinds of people I have described tonight describes you? Where are you? The first one is none of you are the first group. You've all heard the gospel. But then you have the first four, all of which are far from the kingdom. People who either don't understand the gospel or they understand it but don't believe it. Or they understand and believe it, but they haven't obeyed it by repenting of their sins and repenting of their righteousness. The fifth kind of person, the false convert, thinks they're inside the kingdom, but they're really not. The sixth person is close to the kingdom, right at the very door. Hasn't quite entered, but they're very, very close. And God promises, if you seek me, you will find me. Seventh kind of person has recently passed through the door, struggling with the assurance that they really have. Can't believe it. The eighth kind of person is someone who has been walking with the Lord for a long time, but struggling with assurance. But are they any less a child of God than other people in the kingdom? No. And then finally, you have the ninth kind of person, the person who is in the kingdom, knows it, and is rejoicing in their salvation. Where are you? Where are you? Honestly, facing where you are hopefully helps you to figure out where you need to be. And that leads me to my second thing. Jesus Christ is able to save you, whoever you are. And He's just as willing as He is able. You've heard us say that so many times. It's just as true tonight as it was all the other times we said it. Okay? God has regenerated atheists and agnostics before. And He's forgiven them for all the blasphemous things they said about Him. Because he's the God who does that. Because Jesus died on the cross to save blasphemers. And God has been patient with people who believe the message of the gospel, but who stubbornly clung to their sins for a very, very long time. And he's finally broken them of their sin, given them a broken and contrite heart, and then brought them into the kingdom like Augustine, who for years held on to his sexual immorality, but finally said, no, it's not worth it. And he broke off from his sin and put his faith in Jesus. The Lord has taken proud, self-righteous people who thought they had it all together, like Paul, and broken them and showed them their righteousness won't cut it. And only the righteousness of Jesus can save them. And they, by faith alone, put their faith in Christ and did not trust themselves. And the Holy Spirit has opened the eyes of false converts. I have good news for you. Jesus is just as able to save a false convert as he is somebody who knows they're not converted and to awaken them to their need. And because Jesus is risen, you know he has the authority to forgive you, whoever you are, and to give you his righteousness and to save you. He's not only willing, he desires to save sinners. What does the scripture say? I have no desire, no no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Therefore, turn and live. God says, I desire sinners. To repent. I love to forgive sinners. Do you know it gives Jesus great joy to forgive people who've rebelled against him and blasphemed him? That's the kind of God that our God is. Third and finally, for those of you who have obeyed the gospel but you lack assurance, do you know it's the will of God that you should attain it? It's God's command. It's God's will to be diligent to make your calling and election sure. It's His desire that His children should enjoy the benefits. It's not the devil's desire, of course, but it is God's desire that His children should obey, should know those things. The Holy Spirit moved the Apostle John to write an entire letter, 1 John, 
And the whole purpose of that letter is this. These things I've written to you who have believed in Christ, so you're already in the kingdom, that you may know that you have eternal life. Peter exhorts be diligent to make your calling and election sure. So God willing, in the weeks to come, I want to teach you some things about assurance and how, how do you find it and what things are obstacles to it. Before we get there next week, I want to ask you, what is saving faith? That's going to be our entire focus. What is saving faith? And then the week after, what is repentance? And to consider those things together. And then, finally, assurance. Well, may the Lord help you to know, first of all, where you are, but then also by grace, how to change and grow to where he would have you to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that gives such clarity to us. I pray that your spirit be at work among all of us helping us understand where we are in relationship to you and your kingdom and granting us grace that we might repent and believe. But for those of us who have repented and believed, Lord, that we may be assured and enjoy the joy of our salvation. Thank you for being the God that you are. Thank you for not leaving us without your word. In Jesus' name, amen.